This is Sheree Celestine, Research Analyst at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Latrina Collins-Craig, a licensed professional counselor and the co-founder of CNC Wellness. We are here to talk about neurodiversity. Welcome to the podcast, Latrina. Thank you. Nice to be here. So for our listeners who have not heard this term before, neurodiversity refers to diverse ways of thinking, learning, and behaving that we all have. We often see this word crop up in discussions of autism and ADHD, but the important thing to understand is that neurodiversity conditions like these differences rather than deficits. And these differences can and often are that special ingredient that unlocks the answers to problems and drives innovation forward. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, Latrina, to help us all learn more about this. The first question that I want you to answer for our listeners is, where does neurodiversity fit into the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion from your perspective? So currently there are studies that show that we're growing with our DEI programs across countries all over the world, not just the states, but only about 4% of them consider what I call the invisible disabilities when we're talking about this diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so when we look at DEI, the term says diversity, equity, and inclusion. How can we claim to have an appropriate DEI program when we have a whole subset of the population and workforce and leadership being left out? So there's about one in five people navigating life with what we call a learning or thinking different, okay? And that's what makes up our neurodiversity and, and when they think about diagnosis or when they think of ADHD or when they think of autism or dyslexia or uh, reading or math disability. It's just people that are learning and thinking differently. And because that makes up about 20%, and it's not just your employees, it's your leadership, it's your stakeholders, it's the customers. And so for any company to actually thrive and grow, we have stakeholders. Well, your stakeholders make up one of these one in five people. And so if you're not including them on the side of your employees, 90% of the time you're not including them in your decision-making for your stakeholders either. And so it's an intricate part because without it, you're not really having inclusive. You're just playing on the words. That is very good. And that leads me into my next question. Because mm-hmm. companies are moving towards being inclusive and the nature of what inclusivity is looking like is being more and more defined and peeled apart. Mm-hmm. As we include different people, we want to make sure that we consider all types of brains and bodies. Are there more common diagnoses that struggle with the status quo? Because once you're looking at inclusivity, you have to start not only tailoring to the majority, but you also have to include the minority or that 20%. So your question in lies the problem with status quo management, okay? It's going to be an impossible feat as we move toward more inclusivity to still keep a status quo management style. Best practices are going to say, hey, we have to do away with that. And so the quote-unquote new status quo management style will become something a little bit more like what we see in educational facilities 
schools where you'll have something that's spoken word, but also a handout for the written word, but also sounds and things to do for those who need to have more hands-on approach. So with the current status of what status quo management style is, there's a combination, like we have people with autism that we think of as struggle the most. However, autism is a little less diagnosed and there's fewer people with autism in those more severe levels of the spectrum in the workforce. ADHD tends to be one that struggles the most because ADHD is so heard, it's so vastly diagnosed that everybody thinks they understand it. And because everybody thinks they understand it, you think that you know exactly how to operate it. Very few of our people in the work world or in world period understand that there is an inattentive ADHD, there is a hyper ADHD, there's a combination ADHD, and then there's a what we call symptomless ADHD. But when you look at that, what people think of is ADHD. So we all think of somebody who can't concentrate and can't sit still. Well, the issue with that is that because people think they understand it, they then apply their own biases. And so the National Center for Learning Disabilities recently put out a study at the end of 2020 that said about 51% of the American people think that learning and thinking difficulties are really just laziness. So we now have a unique issue in our current work world the way it's set up. This is the first time in history because of how long people are living that we basically have about six generations in the workforce altogether. So you have your baby boomers all the way down to your youngest millennials that are all in the workforce at the same time. Well, the baby boomer generation, before we had names for a lot of these things, it wasn't that any nobody in the baby boomer generation had ADHD. We just didn't have a name for it. And so they were told, you got in trouble because you need to learn how to sit still. You need to focus. You need to grow out of these things. And so they grow up with this mentality that that's all that's necessary and that's all that's needed. And because our current way that we do management, it's like longevity and you're kind of promoted to these areas based on your work experience, how long you've been there. And so that also comes with some of your biases. So for my generation, being a little older than you, Ms. Sheree, my generation was, hey, you put on your suit, you went to work, eight to five, you stopped, you ate your lunch, and <laughs> you had your little cubicle and you were really happy about it. Where your generation is like, well, I'm just as productive at Starbucks as I am sitting in the cubicle. And as a matter of fact, I may even be more productive because I can tune things out. Just little simple things like that is a problem with the status quo management style for someone with a learning or thinking difference is because it doesn't allow for that flexibility of things. And we'll talk a little bit more later about like some things that people can do in the workplace, but it doesn't allow for the flexibility of what a person with a inattentive ADHD versus somebody with a hyperactive ADHD needs. And so they, from research and from my personal experience, people with ADHD tend to face, they're the most common diagnosis that face trouble. 
So I know that the DSM is changing in how neurodiversity, and it may impact that definition of the word neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. can you explain what neurodiversity means? Okay. Well, I can try. <laughs> so neurodiversity is just that thing, like I said before, it's just a learning or thinking different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Some common diagnosis that fit into it are ADHD, autism, the entire spectrum, but so is dyslexia or some people severe anxiety would fit into that category. So anybody that falls into this category, how I receive and process information, how my brain beyond learning or my control, how my brain receives, remembers, processes, and then applies information. Sounds great. Great answer. Because people perceive and listen to information and output it differently, that is what you were saying to that point, and I wanted to bring that out a little bit more. Because perceiving information is based off of how each individual's brains work, that directly ties, or what I'm hearing you say is that directly ties to learning styles. Exactly. And because learning styles are different and is related to brains, how do leaders and team members, how do we all now engage together to be inclusive with this different subset that may also be a part of the intergenerational workforce and workspaces? Okay. So a great thing is to utilize what academic facilities have been doing for decades is they tend to include all three. So we have three major learning styles, okay? You have audio, you have visual, and you have what we call tactile or kinesthetic or hands-on. So your really good leaders are going to include all three. If I'm in a meeting and I'm having a meeting with staff, that's why we have minutes. Is because the idea that everybody can just come to a meeting, hear what's being said, and be able to remember what the action items are and what they need to do and what's happening going forward is outdated. And you're taking a subset of the group and you're making it difficult for them to do their job. Having minutes, allowing staff members to record meetings if necessary so that they can come back and listen to those things later in a time and a space where they're capable of absorbing that information. Making that allowance and that space for realizing, okay, this person is different. And traditionally what we do with differences is we say we don't have time. You know, everybody's like, we need to be so productive. So you just need to come, listen to what I tell you, and then go do it. Well, even if I just stop by your office, and I'll give an example of how deep this really goes. I got new perfume, and I come by your office, and you have autism. Well, me standing in your doorway with my new perfume, autism has a sensory issue to it. So I'm talking to you, but what has happened is, You've smelled my perfume, it's offensive, and now your brain has shut down on what I'm actually saying because you can't get past what's inundating and overwhelming your senses at this time. Something like that, if I don't know your cues, if I'm looking at you and instead of recognizing you've done something different and asking, okay, what's happened? I attack it. Are you listening to me? That's an issue. And it makes it difficult for people to stand up and say, actually, I am trying to listen to you, but I'm having a little sensory overload right now. 
And so I'm not saying that I believe leadership is supposed to be able to always know these things, but leadership can ask these things. And so if a person says to their leader, hey, I don't really do well with being interrupted when I'm working on a task. So instead of just you thinking of something and you give me a call or you shoot me an instant message and say, hey, come to my office, could you just send me an email? And then that way I can continue what I'm doing. And when I'm at a natural stopping point, I can check your email and address whatever your concerns. I've had a couple of supervisors or managers over the years that felt like they shouldn't have to do that because they're the boss. Well, the question is, do you want a productive team or do you just want to do things the way you want to do it? And so those are some of the small things to kind of think about for leadership in how we start to grow into this more inclusive workplace environment and how to actually create that space to make it safe for people to say their differences without fear of it being used against them in a review or some type of retaliation. I can appreciate your definition of neurodiversity and how making some of these accommodations will increase productivity. What are some best practices for managers or HR leaders when they want to attract and retain neurodiverse talents? Okay. So a great thing is with the idea of your inclusion needs to start with your hiring process. So something as simple as removing some companies still have the thing where you apply, you fill out an application. On the application, you're required to put all of your work experience, but you're also required to submit a resume. It seems like just, oh, one little simple thing, what difference does it make? They can just type it from their resume. The issue with that is, though, the repetitive nature of it. It sends a message that, okay, it being on my resume is not enough that I have to do something more. Remember, we're talking about people that learn and think differently. And so just that fact tends to sometimes create an anxiety or a stress or a pressure that may make certain people not even apply to your job because it requires too much of them to do that extra step. And so things like that, the interviewing process, when you call a potential employee for an interview, do you ask them, hey, do you have any accommodations that you need for the interview? It's becoming a more and more known question, but it's still not something that the masses are asking when they call for interviews. And we tend to think of it currently in a way of it being a problem if you need something. And so maybe saying, hey, you know, we are a diverse and inclusive work environment. With that in mind, we want to make sure that this interview is as painless for you as possible. So are there any accommodations you may need? If we're going to do a virtual interview, do you need any assistive devices? Do you need me to send you the questions beforehand? Because a person with dyslexia, for example, they may need the questions beforehand because how they hear things and how they read things are going to give two different perspectives and perceptions. And so just little things like that. But once you actually have a person on board, your onboarding process. We used to have the old school, they give you this big binder of all of the policies. And then at some point we were like, 
we're killing all of the trees. And so we're like, everything's online now. Online's great, but it wouldn't hurt to ask a person. Because when you think about it, if you have policies, everybody's not necessarily gonna go online and print them. However, that may be what they actually need. And so saying in your onboarding and in your training, these policies are available in print if necessary. It's no different than when we started understanding we needed to have things in brand for some of our people who couldn't see. And so we started doing elevators. It's just trying to be inclusive, talking to them, making accommodations a subset of your onboarding process. Talk to all new hires, all new leadership. It should be a part, even when you promote within and how we have training that are done periodically, that should be one of the trainings that's done periodically. What is the company's accommodation policy? What are the forms that you need to fill out to apply for accommodation? What are some common accommodations that the company offers? Those things need to be a part of everyday conversation so that if you start to notice that you're really struggling, some people have a diagnosis and that they've had forever and they managed it. But now they're in a new environment and what used to work to manage it no longer works. But if they don't know where to go to get that help, if it's not easily accessible, you're going to have more people that just suffer through it, which then impact productivity and job satisfaction. And so what happens? You have trouble retaining people because they don't feel seen. And so those are just some of the best practices. So accommodating sensory sensitivities, using education programs and learning tools. And then the easiest and last is to ask, what do you need? That needs to be part of conversation. With leadership, we have the things where we're doing job evaluations. Do you ever ask in those evaluations, in those meetings, what works for you? What do you need? And so those are just some basic best practices. I think that covers the gamut of what could happen with HR leaders team leaders and just working on a team in general, applying those different techniques could probably apply to some sensitivity trainings and some of those different discussions that you have with your team groups and just shifting the the mental models that may have some unconscious biases. Those techniques that you just gave, I can see that applying. There was one caveat I wanted to give to that in that people with one of these diagnoses or who may feel like they are a part of the the population. There are some things that, since we're talking about what are some best practices, there are some best practices for them as well that they need to start doing. And number one is to get an official diagnosis. There is so many people that have diagnosis and then relatable symptoms, okay? Because the ICD-10 and the DSM-5, we create our characteristics of a diagnosis the same way we do with medical things. COVID is our most recent thing, right? So what happens is we had the first people to come in with this new code. It didn't match certain symptoms of anything else we have seen. So now we know it's something different. But from that, we're able to take all of the people from around the world that came in that we think have this 
and we said, okay, what are the common symptoms that they have? And so then we release those and we say, these are the symptoms of COVID. We do the same thing with diagnosis. And so with someone, we may say, hey, ADHD has trouble focusing, right? But you could also have trouble focusing if you have things going on in your life or you don't like your boss <laughs> or you don't, you find interesting what's being talked about. And so there will be some things that we can all relate to, but you can't have an accommodation based on symptoms that you relate to. When you're actually advocating for yourself, the very first thing you need is that official diagnosis that says you meet enough of these criteria that have enough of an impact in all areas of your life for you to meet this criteria and this diagnosis. Because that's the thing. I looked at the DSM, well, at the time I was in grad school, I'm gonna date myself a little bit. It was the DSM four. We've had three different DSMs since then. But I remember reading that and thinking, I have everything. <laughs> I'm I'm all through this because every single diagnosis in there, there was at least one symptom that I felt like I had at one part of my life or another. But I didn't have any of them for long enough time, over enough period of time, or in a way that impacts my day-to-day -day life enough for me to be able to say, this has to be my accommodation for it. And so that not only helps the the employee or helps the leadership as well, because I know that is a fear of leadership. And we want to be inclusive, but how do we be inclusive but still keep a centralized company and a centralized standard of how we do things? And so that's one way, having that official diagnosis. Then working to learn, what do you need? You can't expect a company, a leader, a boss, anybody on the planet to be able to know more about what you need than you know. So you have to become the expert on yourself. Being comfortable with recognizing, I think differently, and that's okay. One of the first things I say to all of my clients, we would never tell a person with no legs, you should be able to dance the exact same way a person with two legs can dance. We would never say that because we can see that disability and we can see the limitations of that disability. But not only do we do it with invisible disabilities all the time, but clients do it to themselves. And so then the last thing is being able to advocate for yourself and say, hey, when you're asked, actually answer the question, what you need. If you're not asked, go and say, this is what I need. Instead of just giving me instructions in your office, I need you to write them down. I need us to recap a meeting. If I can't take notes in this meeting, then at the end of the meeting, I need a recap. We need to go over and clearly point out what are the actions. That's what I need to effectively do my job. And so that goes hand in hand with how HR and leadership works. The employee has a responsibility as well. My final question is, essentially, do you have any final thoughts of how inclusivity, respect, and boundaries in the workforce is important? If we all start to interact with each other in that way that I want to be for somebody else what I needed 
at some point in my life. It helps us to respect each other's boundaries differently. It helps us to see each other. And so everything doesn't feel like and seem like an inconvenience, right? So me having to repeat something that I've said three or four times may be an inconvenience to me in my natural personality and my natural way of how I am. However, if I think about who I'm talking to and that my focus is that who I'm talking to feels heard and feels understood and feels supported, then me repeating it is 30 seconds of my life. So kind of keeping that in mind, there was a thing that I learned when I worked on a college campus. I used to have a very difficult time saying certain names and saying certain words. I'm a Texas girl. I have a, a draw and a list with certain things. So learning to correctly say someone's name seems like, you know, you meet people and they have this name and you're like, oh, so do you have a nickname? That question to me seemed familiar. It seemed okay. But what that question actually says is that you're not important enough for me to learn to say your name. And that's the same thing. It's just a fundamental way of how we see each other. My rights stop where your rights start. And so in the workplace, when we're interacting with each other, recognizing and remembering, okay, what I'm dealing with, they may be dealing with something different. So if they have a boundary, if they're telling me this is something that they're needing, what is the issue with accommodating? If it's something I can't accommodate, then I can say to them, okay, I can't actually do this thing that you're needing. Is there some other compromise? Maybe we can work on So you may have that boss that it messes with their learning and thinking style to have to go back and restate certain things because they may not think that concrete and fluid. You know, they may think more fluid where they just talk. And so if you ask them to come back and say at the end what they said at the beginning, they don't know because they were explaining the concept in a way that it made sense in their mind at that time. And so they may not be able to come back and restate things at the end. But then the compromise is, okay, you start bringing a recorder because you deserve to be helped and I deserve to be helped. And so this is a compromise. As we work together, as we grow together, just as a society, I think compromising and seeing each other's differences as things to learn from and that it strengthens our company as a, and our work team as a whole as opposed to it weakens it will make things so much easier and we'll actually start to see some astronomical growth. How do you think those different changes might affect like how companies look at their policies, procedures, cultures, and things of that sort? Hopefully it turns it on on its head. Hopefully that was one positive that I saw with COVID is that COVID forced us to look at our life and how we thought work had to go. It forced us to look at it differently. And so things that we felt like, oh, you always have to have a meeting. You know, we need to all get together. We need to have this two-hour meeting. And that's the only way we can have all of the people come together and come up with a plan of action. Through COVID, we learned, no, we don't need to all get together. <laughs> in this one room, in this one meeting with everybody. We can have success. You can go work on this part and then come back to the collective and so on and so forth. And so I would really love to see those 
that as companies look at their policies and as they try to work on these things, that they do it with a scalpel instead of a hatchet. There is no need to throw everything out. We're not starting from scratch. We're starting from knowledge. And I would really love to see our leadership understand that. And so it doesn't mean everything has to go away. We don't have to be so rigid in either respect. Everything has to stay the same or everything has to stay the same. But kind of look at our policies and say, okay, how long ago was this policy created? If this is a 20-year-old policy, we need to revisit it. There should be no 20-year-old policies. <laughs> there, every policy your company has should be revisited on at least a, every three to five year cycle. Even if you have to put them on a rotation, just to see as we learn more, as your company grows, as your stakeholders grow, as your shareholders grow, things need to change. And that's the one constant in life is that things change. And I would really hope that they utilize these things, that they start to put these best practices. And if they do it in stages and in steps, you can allow people to adjust and be comfortable and learn, okay, how do I do this thing? And so nobody feels forced and we don't have inciting and backlash just because it's different. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Latrina. Once again, I am Sheree Celestine. Thanks for joining the APQC podcast. Please go to apqc.org to learn more about our research. And we hope that you have a great rest of your day.